1993, the NBA superstar, Charles Barkley, was quoted as saying, I'm not your kid's role model. Just because I can dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your children. And that statement ignited a public discussion about the role of celebrities and sports stars and their obligation or lack thereof to be an example for our children. It was an interesting time and a reminder that you and I need to think carefully about who our kids look up to. And we need to think carefully about who we look up to. In other words, we need to have the right heroes. So much of life is emulating and admiring the right people. And keeping that in mind, I want us to turn to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. As we begin this morning a study through this wonderful book. Joshua chapter 1. It's the sixth book in your Bible. Right after the book of Deuteronomy. Joshua chapter 1. By the time we get through, your Bible will just fall open to Joshua. All right. Joshua chapter 1. Some of you with tablets don't know what I'm talking about. Just You just swipe to the book. But Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, I want to ask you today, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, truth with no mixture of error. Let me just say before we read, it is a joy to be back with you. I was out last week with with a lot of other folks uh, on a trip to uh, South Asia. We had two teams in South Asia, one team in Southeast Asia on mission trips, and so thank you for your prayers. They were all, uh, from the feedback I've gotten, all really... uh, Great trips, the Lord used them, and grateful for those that went, and again, grateful for your prayers. But I'm glad to be back with you, grateful to begin this study on the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name and we are grateful for this opportunity to, Lord, come into your presence as a family of faith, to sing praises to your name that is worthy of our worship. And Lord, to now, Lord, bow our hearts before you as we study your word. Lord, expecting you to speak, expecting you to do a work in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that. As the word of God goes forth, I pray that the power of your spirit would would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the truths of Scripture and respond to those truths. God, I pray that you would use this study today and in the coming days and weeks and months, Lord, to change us so that we can live more fully for your glory. May the name of Jesus be exalted in this place. 
It's all about Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, I'm excited to begin this study. I've been looking forward to this time for quite some time, and we're just going to work our way through the book of Joshua, line by line, verse by verse. We'll get through about four verses this morning, so we're not, we're not going to be in a big hurry, but uh, I believe these four verses are important to set the stage for what is coming uh, in this book. And I'm telling you, there is some really exciting stuff in this book, and I just can't wait to see what God does in the life of our church as we walk through the book of Joshua. But this morning is really a lot about introduction as we kind of get used to this book and what this book is all about. And I thought a good way to introduce the book is by us examining together three major themes in the book of Joshua. These are three themes we'll see over and over and over through this book. And if we will grasp these three major themes, it'll help us to understand the book better as it unfolds. I want to just walk you through these three major themes. The first major theme of the book of Joshua is leaders. Leaders. You can just jot that down in your blank. Leaders. There are some leaders mentioned there in verse 1. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So there are two leaders mentioned in these opening verses, Moses and Joshua. And we learn two, in very, uh, two very important truths about leadership just by looking at these two names. The first important lesson we learn about leadership is this. No leader is indispensable. No leader is indispensable. Do you notice how the book begins? The book begins by saying, uh, the Lord saying to, to, to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Verse 1, after the death of Moses. And so in these first two verses, we see the death of Moses mentioned. Now, Moses was a great leader. He wrote the first five books of the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote Genesis and, and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, as God guided him to write them. And he led Israel through much of this time. We know the story of Moses. He was the one uh, that was born to, uh, to Hebrew parents, and Pharaoh at that time wanted to kill all the Hebrew males. And so his parents tried to hide him till they could hide him no longer. They put him in a, a basket and, and thrust him out into the Nile River. And by God's providence, he landed uh, on the shore uh, by Moses daughter, the princess of Egypt, and he was brought up uh, as an Egyptian, and yet he was Hebrew, uh, born a Hebrew, and, and God formed his life and shaped his life. And then when it was time, God appeared to Moses in the backside of the wilderness at a burning bush and said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, and say to him, let my people, the Hebrew people, let my people go. And Moses was intimidated by that calling, intimidated by that task. But God commanded him, and God strengthened him, and God gave him the confidence he needed so that he was used by God to lead the Hebrew people out of Egyptian bondage and slavery. And then Moses led them to the, to the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses received on their behalf the Ten Commandments and the Word of God. Moses led them to the Promised Land and, and encouraged them to go into the Promised Land like God commanded, and yet the people rebelled and said, we're not going 
into the promised land. The people there are too great. And so God allowed Moses to lead the Hebrew people through the wilderness until that generation of unbelievers died off. And the first five books of the Bible are filled with stories about Moses and his integrity and is his humility and his walk with God. He was a great leader, but here in Joshua, Moses was dead. We pick up this book right after a funeral. Moses is no longer around, and yet God still has a plan for his people. No leader is indispensable to what God is doing in this world. Sometimes leaders think they are. Sometimes believers think they're, they're indispensable to God's work. Listen, none of us in this room are indispensable. If none of us show up tomorrow, guess what? God's kingdom will keep right on marching. And so we need to understand, no leader is indispensable. Uh, Moses is dead. But then we see a new leader has been raised up by God. The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise. So here's what we learn. When uh, former leaders uh, are no longer leading because of their death or whatever reason, new leaders come upon the scene. And new leaders need to be prepared for that task. It says there that Joshua was Moses' assistant. And so he was in a, a secondary role, being prepared for what it would mean to lead the people of Israel. And as the assistant of Moses, you see this unfold in the first five books of the Bible, Joshua was being prepared to lead. For example, Joshua was a warrior and a worshiper. He was a warrior and a worshiper. Over in Exodus chapter 17, we see uh, that Joshua was put into the role of general of the, the fighting men of Israel after they were delivered from Pharaoh's grasp. And Joshua was leading a fight against the Amalekites. But there's an interesting thing about this fight. The fight really has nothing to do with Joshua's military skill or acumen. It has nothing to do with, with his preparation or his strategy. The fight has everything to do with the arms of Moses. You remember that story? Moses is up on the mountain and the Lord had Moses hold his hands up in a posture of dependence, a posture of prayer. And as long as Moses' arms were up in the air... The Hebrew people were winning the battle against the Amalekites, but Moses was just a man, and his strength uh, was fleeting, and so there were times when he would begin to let his arms droop, and when his arms drooped, the Amalekites began to win the day in the battle, and so he had to get to assistance. Aaron and her to come up and sit on either side of him and, and literally hold Moses' arms in the air, because as long as his arms were in the air, the Israelites were winning the battle. And so here's Joshua, thrust into leadership, the general of the army. And he's learning a very important lesson. The success in battle, victory in battle, is not ultimately up to me. Yes, I'm called to lead. Yes, I'm called to fight. But our victory in battle is ultimately up to God. God's people need to be in a posture of dependence. We need to understand that if any good thing happens in and through our midst, it happens because of the Lord. And, and, and so Joshua's learning that lesson. If I'm going to go to battle, I better have the Lord with me. 
I cannot win a battle in my own strength and wisdom. I need, we need God's help. So as a warrior, he learned to be dependent upon God for victory. Listen to me. The church desperately needs to learn this lesson. Our success is not up to our strategies and our plans. If we're going to do anything in this community and in this world for the glory of God, it will be because of the Spirit of God breathing on and through His people. We cannot do anything of eternal significance apart from the power of the Lord. The Bible says some trust in chariots and and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Amen? So as as a warrior, he learned, you better be dependent upon God. You need him. You can't win anything, buddy, apart from him. That's a great lesson for leaders, isn't it? But there's a second lesson he learned as a worshiper. As a worshiper, he learned that God's presence is to be treasured. God's presence is to be treasured. Before the more formal tabernacle was completed, Moses housed the the Ark of the Covenant in what was called the Tent of Meeting. And he would go to that tent to receive instructions from the Lord on behalf of the people of Israel. And this was a big deal because the Bible says when Moses went to the Tent of Meeting, the glory of God fell upon that tent. And the rest of the nation would come to the door of their tent just to watch Moses walk in that tent and meet with the living God. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see the manifest presence of God falling down on this tent? And Moses walks in. And so Moses is meeting with God. And look what it says over in Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Very interesting passage here. It says in verse 9, When Moses entered the, tent up, entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Incredible. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, watch this, his assistant Joshua... The son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Wow. Joshua was a young leader who was hungry for the presence of the Lord. And when Moses had his meeting with God and would finish his meeting with God, Moses would leave the the tent. He would walk away, but Joshua would linger. Joshua didn't want to leave. Joshua loved the presence of God. So as a Warrior, he learned to be dependent upon God. As a worshiper, he learned that God's presence is to be treasured. Let me just tell you this. The great leaders through, through Christian history have been those that treasure the presence of God. That, that love to spend time with the Lord. That, that, that cherish His presence in their lives. And so Joshua was prepared as a warrior and a worshiper. Hey, by the way, this is parenthetical. You know what our church needs today? Not just our church, but every church. We need gospel warriors and gospel worshipers. Folks that have spirit-empowered courage... And folks that love the presence of the Lord. 
That's what we need in our day. So he was a warrior and a worshiper. But secondly, Joshua was a servant and a spy. Being prepared by God, he was a servant and a spy. As a servant, he learned to lead people that are sometimes hard to lead. In Exodus 32, when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, Joshua, it is said, goes up with him. Not all the way, but he goes up a little bit higher on the mountain and waits for Moses to come down. While Moses and Joshua are up on the mountain, the people get restless. And they say, we want to worship something. We, we want to see the God that we worship. And so they gathered all of their gold and trinkets that the Egyptians had given them. God had, had moved on the Egyptians' hearts to give them all of these, these things. So they had some monetary goods, some material goods as they left the, the nation of Egypt. But they took God's blessing and made it into an idol. Hey, by the way, did you know you can take something that God intended to be a blessing for your life and make it into an idol? And they got all of their gold and metal together, and they said to Aaron, Moses' brother, acting as the, the leader, the priest in that moment, said, hey, would you make us a calf, a golden calf, and we'll, we'll worship that calf and say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. They, they instantly went into idolatry and worshiping graven images. Well, as Moses receives the Ten Commandments and heads back down the mountain, he links up with Joshua, and they, they hear noise down in the camp, and Joshua says, well, this must be war. Moses says, it's not war. They are working themselves into an immoral frenzy of idol worship. And they come down the mountain, and the people are worshiping this false god. Moses asks Aaron about it, and Aaron, it's really comical if you read that, that chapter, if, if it weren't so sad. Aaron says to Moses, well, you know, we got some, some gold together, we put it in the fire, and out came this calf. Just, just kind of, oops, here came the calf. You know the story, Moses throws the Ten Commandments down and breaks them, and is angry, and God's judgment falls. But guess what? Even though God could have wiped them out, Moses intercedes for the people. And one of many times says, God, don't wipe them out. Don't do that, God. And he prays and intercedes. And Joshua learned from that, that people are sometimes hard to lead. And yet, leaders care for their people. He learned that as a servant with Moses. But he also learned a lesson as a spy. As a spy, he learned that it is more important to stand with God than with the majority. Over in Numbers 14, how many spies go into the land, the promised land? Twelve, right? They go into the promised land. They come back and say, it's just like God said. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at these grapes we brought back. I mean, it's an amazing land God has chosen to give to his people. Only one problem. The folks that live there are really tough. And really big. And 10 of the 12 said, hey, we don't think we should go. We'll be decimated. And only two said, no, we should obey God. We should cross this Jordan and take the land just like God commanded us. You know the two men were? Caleb and Joshua. And even though the rest of the, the camp, the, the other spies, the the, the millions of, of Hebrew people, even though they were saying, we should not go in the land, Joshua said, we should obey God. And he learned 
that even if the majority of people are against the Lord, we should stand for the Lord. He learned that lesson as a spy. And listen, you and I need to learn that lesson, don't we? Because guess what? The majority is rarely right. Can I get an amen? The majority... You look at what's happening with the majority in our nation today as we, as we flee from the fear of God. Listen to me. The majority is rarely right. We better stand for what's right, not for what's socially acceptable. And so Joshua was a warrior and a worshiper. He was a servant and a spy. And, and third and last, he was appointed and anointed. He was appointed and anointed. Look with me in Numbers chapter 27. Numbers chapter 27. Interesting story here about God raising up Joshua to be Moses' successor. Look in chapter 27, verse 18. The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him, commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. So the Lord is very clear. Moses, Joshua is your successor. I want you in a very public way to let everyone know that. When you die, there's not going to be an election. I've already raised up the next man. And this ceremony of laying on of hands will communicate to the people, Joshua is the next leader. So God appointed him with a very clear calling. Joshua, this is what I want you to do. I want you to lead my people when Moses is no longer around. But not only was Joshua appointed, he was anointed. Look what it says in verse 18. The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. God anointed him so he would be empowered to fulfill the calling. Listen to me. God will never call you to anything that he does not give you the power to do. I'll say it again. God will never call you to anything that he does not give you the power to do. If God calls you to something, if he calls you to a task, he will give you the power through his spirit to fulfill the task. And we see here, that, that God anointed him so he would be empowered to fulfill the calling. It was not an easy thing to lead the people of Israel. And yet Joshua served the Lord with distinction. Why? The power of God rested upon his life. He was filled with the Spirit. And so, no leader's indispensable. Moses died in Joshua 1, but, but th- there's this new leader, Joshua, ready to go. Why? He had been prepared by God. A warrior, a worshiper, a servant, a spy, appointed and anointed. As we see the book of Joshua unfold, we will see just how important leadership is. Leadership is a big deal. When I think about my own life, I think about things I've done that were really dumb. Anybody here ever done anything dumb? Am I the only one? Am I? Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about, Wade. I, 
I've done some things that are just dumb. I mean, just, just dumb. And, and there's sometimes I've made some good decisions in my life. I've been involved in some good things, some, some things that are right. And when I look at the difference, listen to me, most of the time it came down to leadership. Who was I following? Whose voice was I allowing to have sway and influence in my life? And when I see myself doing dumb things in my past, I was listening to the wrong folks. And when I was doing things that, were, that mattered and were good, I was usually following good leadership. And it's the same in your life. The Bible says that he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Amen? Leadership's a big deal. That's been true in your life. That's been true in your experience in churches. That's been true in, in the workplace, in your family. Leadership is a big deal. And we're going to see this theme of leadership come up over and over and over again in Joshua. We're going to learn over and over and over again what it means to be a godly leader. And I pray that as we work our way through this book, we will see new leadership arise in our homes and and new leadership arise in our church and, and new godly leadership arise in our community because leadership is a big deal. There's a second major theme here. Not only that of leaders, but the theme of land. Land is a big deal in Joshua. Look what it says back in Joshua chapter 1, verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I'm giving to them, so the people of Israel, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon land... I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. Then he defines the land from the wilderness in this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. Hey, quick parenthetical thought here. For years, liberal scholars would, uh, in, in academia, say, you know that Bible talks about this empire called the Hittites? <laughs> There's no such people no one's ever seen any evidence of, of, of Hittites. We know the Bible's not historically accurate. It can't be trusted because it talks about Hittites. It's, it's some made-up group of people. Well, guess what? One day, some archaeologists were digging. And guess what they found? An entire civilization called the... That was all extra. All right, that was just free. The Bible's trustworthy. Can I get an Amen. Not one word has ever been disproven by liberal academia. It just keeps on proving itself to be the word of God, truth with no mixture of error over and over and over again. I'm grateful for a sure word from heaven, aren't you? But God defines the limits of the land. And and land here is a big deal. Now, what's at play when he says, hey, lead the people into the land? Well, to understand this, we need to go all the way back to a promise that God made to a man named Abraham. As a matter of fact, this command to take the land was a continuing fulfillment of those promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So hold your place, but turn back to Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to show you this. Genesis chapter 12. Now to set the context of this chapter, sin had entered the world after God created everything and created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And sin entered the world and ruined everything. 
the curse of sin lay heavy upon humanity and heavy upon the earth. And we see how sinful humanity is when God destroys the earth through a great flood and starts back over with Noah and his family. See how sinful the earth is when God scatters everyone at the Tower of Babel. And, and if you're just reading through Genesis for the first time and you get to the Tower of Babel and read chapter 11, you think, there's no hope for humanity. How's God going to fix this mess? I mean, there's sin and wickedness everywhere. What's God going to do? How can God rescue men and women from this curse of sin that's infected everything? Well, the answer begins in Genesis chapter 12. Look what it says there. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This, this promise has three basic aspects. He tells Abraham, hey, listen, I'm going to give you a son, even though you think you and Sarah can't have children. I'm going to give you a son, and through your son and his descendants, I will build a great nation. A, a nation of, of descendants from your seed, Abraham. We know that nation to be the Israelites, the Hebrew people. God started with Abraham and gave Abraham and Sarah Isaac, and, and God formed a great nation through them. He said, Abram, I'm going to show you a land. And in this land, your descendants will grow and settle and accomplish my purpose for them. And, he says to Abraham, through your descendants, listen to this, all the other people groups on the earth, all the peoples will be blessed. The potentiality of blessing for everybody will come through your descendants, through the, through the Hebrew people. Blessings for folks that live in Hernando, Mississippi, in South Asia, and West Africa, and all over the world. Blessing will be available through Abraham's seed. Now, how in the world is that possible? How can you and I and everyone experience blessing from God through the Hebrew people? Well, the rest of the Bible tells us the answer to that question. God forms a nation through Abraham. He gives him Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has Joseph and all the brothers and all that story. He forms this people called the Hebrews, the Israelites. He watches over them. He protects them. He preserves them. And then one day, in the fullness of time, through the Hebrew people, God sends his son. He sends a Messiah. And Jesus leaves the splendor and glory of heaven. He comes to earth and takes on humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he lives on this earth, a perfect life, a matchless life, a life with no sin, a life of perfect purity. And Jesus Christ sent through the Hebrews, the Messiah, goes to the cross. The Bible says... He goes to the cross to die for the sins of the world. People in Hernando and people in West Africa and people in South Asia and people in South America. He went to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And he paid the penalty that you and I deserve to pay. He died for our sins. He paid it all. 
And after he died on the cross, he was buried. And early on the third day, he walked out of his tomb. He defeated death itself. It proved that he was who he said he was, that he could do what he said he could do, give us eternal life. And because Jesus died and because Jesus rose from the dead, if anyone from any people group turns from their sin and places their faith in the finished work of Christ, they can be blessed with salvation. So all that goes back to this promise that the Lord made to Abraham. And when the Lord says to Joshua, go into the land, he's just coming through on his promise to Abraham. Hey, I told Abraham I'm going to give his people land. You go take it. It is the promised land. That's why we call it the the promised land. It's It's land given as a fulfillment of a promise to Abraham. So God formed a new nation through the descendants of Abraham. He saved them from destruction during a great famine during the days of Jacob. God delivered his people from slavery. We call that the Exodus. Now God was giving his people a place. And ultimately, one day, God would send his son Jesus through that people. So the land's a big deal. As a matter of fact, the entire outline of the book is about land. For example, the first part of the book is, comes from the Hebrew word abar, cross the Jordan into the land, chapters 1 through 5. Then we see another Hebrew word, lakak, which means to take the land, chapters 6 through 12. And then kalak, divide the land, chapters 13 through 21. And then abad, serve the Lord in the land, chapters 22 through 24. That's the outline of the book. It's all about the land. Part 1, go into the land. Hey, part 2, Take the land from the people living there. I've given it to you. Part three, divide it up among the people of Israel, the different tribes. Part four, hey, serve me now that I've given you this land. Serve the Lord in the land. The book is organized around land. And I love how Warren Wiersbe says it. Listen to this quote. God chose the land of Israel to be the stage on which the great drama of redemption would be presented. Why is the promised land such a big deal? Because God chose that land to be the place where he would bring to fruition his promises to bless all the peoples of the earth. It would be the the great stage on which the drama of redemption would unfold. That's why the land is such a big deal. I used to think land wasn't that big of a deal. And then my mom passed away. And my dad decided to go back to where he grew up, Central Florida. And so he sold the home place. If you ever had that happen, you know what that feels like. He sold the home place where I grew up. He sold the land where my house was situated. And he, he moved back to uh, Central Florida. And I'll just be honest with you, it's, a, it's still a strange feeling. I mean, that's where I grew up. That's where I plate. That was my house. I mean, it was my land, right? And it's no longer in the family. And I didn't think I cared too much about land until the home place was gone. Now magnify that by a thousand times and think about how precious this land is that God promised to give to his people and in that land to bring about redemption through the work of his son for all of us in this room. The land is a big deal. As we walk through Joshua, 
we're going to see how important the land, the promised land, really is. It's a major theme in the book. So we've talked about leaders. You can't read Joshua without learning about leadership. We've talked about land, how important land is. But here's the third major theme of this book, and it is the Lord. (laughs) The Lord. Look what it says back in Joshua chapter 1. This is after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan. What's happening here? God is directing things. And here's what you and I need to understand. And if you don't get this, then you're not going to be thrilled and changed by the study in Joshua. But, but if you get what I'm about to say, then you will be on the edge of your seat week after week after week. So here it is. You ready? God is the hero of this book. God is the hero of this book. As a matter of fact, in chapter 1, I did a quick count. The Lord's name is mentioned 10 times in chapter 1. 10 times. Now, how many times the name of Joshua is mentioned? Just four. I thought that was interesting. I don't know how it plays out the rest of the book, but in chapter 1... God's name is mentioned ten times, Joshua's name only four. I know the book is named after Joshua, but I'm telling you that the central character of this book, the most important character of this story, is the Lord God himself. And you'll see that over and over and over again through this book. For example, we'll see that he is the one who makes and keeps promises. Over in Joshua chapter 21... The Bible says that when the, listen to this, when the Lord speaks, there are no falling words. In other words, no words that fall to the ground unfulfilled. When God speaks, when God promises, what he says always comes to pass. God is trustworthy. His promises are true. We can build our lives upon His promises and stand on His promises and rejoice in His promises because God always, always, always comes through. Let me make a provocative statement, but I believe believe it's biblically accurate. You ready? God has never let you down. Now, I'm not saying you've never gone through difficulty. I get that. We've all gone through difficult things. Life is hard. But God has never let you down. God has a perfect plan and purpose for your life. And God even takes the bad stuff and works it together for your good. What a mighty God we serve. Amen? He's never let you down. And and Joshua will remind us how God always comes through on his promises, how God is trustworthy, how when he speaks, his words never fall to the ground. As a matter of fact, one commentary on this book is titled, No Falling Words. I like that. No Falling Words. We'll be reminded that he is the one that gives victory. He is the one that gives victory. Look what it says in Joshua 1 verse 5. We'll get to this some more next week. Look in verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Why? Because you're a great leader, Joshua? Because you're really, really strong? No, look what he says. 
Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. The reason, Joshua, you will achieve victory is because I will be with you. We're going to be reminded over and over and over again that God is the one who gives victory. Third, we'll learn that he is the one that saves. He is the one that saves. We're reminded of this in chapter 1, right off the bat, that God is the God who saves in a couple of different ways. And this is fascinating. Number one, we're reminded that he saves because of Joshua's name. Joshua's name. Look what it says there in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun. You know what the name Joshua means? Just very simply, it means Jehovah saves or the Jehovah is salvation or the Lord saves the Lord is salvation. That's what his name means. So every time we say the word Joshua, and we're going to say it a lot, we're going to be reminded by his very name that the Lord saves. And it gets even better because Joshua is the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. Isn't that cool? So every time we say the name of Joshua, we're saying the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. And you remember the angels named Jesus. Sent from God, they said to, to Gabriel said to Luke and to Matthew, name this baby Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So even in the very name of Joshua, we are going to be reminded over and over and over again that the Lord saves. But we're also reminded that God saves by Joshua's birth order. And I never come across this until I began to study for this sermon. But in 1 Chronicles 7.27, you know what we learned about Joshua? Joshua was the firstborn of his father, None. Now, what's the big deal about that? Is there any big deal about birth order, first son? Well, no big deal except that his life was saved on the night of Passover. You remember when God sent the tenth plague to Egypt? Pharaoh kept hardening his heart against the Lord when Moses would say, let my people go, and Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. So the Lord says, I'm going to get his attention. God tells Moses of the coming tenth plague. The death of the firstborn in all the land. God would go through the land and kill every firstborn child. Devastating judgment. And that would finally, by the way, get Pharaoh's attention. And Pharaoh would say, leave! But you say, the death of the firstborn is only uh, bad news. I mean, if God's going to go through the entire land and kill all the firstborn, what about his people? What about the the Hebrew people? Well, God made a provision of salvation for them. And God said, I want every Hebrew family to take a a lamb and and kill that lamb and and take the, the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost with hyssop. And God said, When I come through the land to kill the firstborn, if I come to a home and I see the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over that home. And the firstborn in that home will be saved. Guess what? Joshua was a firstborn. 
And none took God seriously and took the blood from a Passover lamb and put that blood on their doorpost. And on that night, when God came through in devastating judgment, he saw the blood on that doorpost and passed over Joshua's home, and Joshua was saved. So Joshua knew this. Listen, Joshua understood that because of the blood of a lamb, God had passed over him in judgment. Now listen, 1 Corinthians 5-7 says this, Jesus is our Passover. That means if you've embraced Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, His blood covers your life. And on that final day of judgment, when people are assigned their eternal destiny, heaven or hell. If the Lord God looks at your life and sees the blood of Jesus Christ, He will pass over you in judgment and you will be saved. So even by the birth order of Joshua, we're reminded of the Passover lamb, which was a picture, a type, that just pointed to the work of Jesus. And so even in chapter number 1, we haven't even got past four verses. We are reminded that God is the one who saves. God is the hero of this book. So let me give you a, a statement to sum all this up. Here's the point. God is the hero of the book of Joshua and is worthy of our adoration and allegiance. If you and I get that from our study of Joshua, it will be, have been a successful time together. God is the hero of this book. And by the way, every book of the Bible. And He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our allegiance. We're going to see how great He is. And it will cause our hearts to, to rise up in worship. And we will see how important it is that we follow Him. We're going to see the consequences of of disregarding God. We'll also see the blessing of obeying God. And giving Him our will's allegiance. Let me just say this before we close as to how you and I should engage the book of Joshua. We have any Bible drillers in here? A lot of kids are upstairs now. Any Bible drillers? Any Bible drill workers in here? We got some Bible drill. Okay. In Bible drill, we teach our kids how to divide up the books of the Bible, and it's really helpful. For example, uh, we teach uh, that you divide up the Old Testament uh, under different headings. For example, you have the first five books of the Bible: the Torah, the Pentateuch, or the Law, Genesis through um, Deuteronomy. And then we talk about the history books, starting with the book of Joshua, uh, going through to roughly Ezra and Nehemiah, right through there. And then we talk about the wisdom literature, uh, the poetic books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then we talk about the minor prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, Daniel. Then we talk about the, the, those are major prophets. Then we talk about the minor prophets like, you know, Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Hosea and those different minor. And so we divide them up like that. You know, you basically got, I think I'm right on this, Bible drillers, so I'm not, correct me afterwards. But, but you got history, you got law, you've got history, you've got poetic books or wisdom books, you've got major prophets and minor prophets. 
Everybody familiar with that kind of designation? It's helpful to think about them in that way. Listen to me. That's not how the Hebrews divided up the books. Ancient Hebrews only had three different designations. They had the law, first five books of the Bible. Then they had what are called the, uh, the, the, pro- the prophecies or the prophetic writings. And they had another section called just the writings. And guess what? The book of Joshua was one of the prophetic books. They didn't count it as history. They counted it as prophecy. Now, coming real close, here's what that means. In the ancient Hebrew mindset, the book of Joshua was not a history lesson. It was a sermon. And if you and I approach this book as a history lesson, we're going to miss it. Now, we're going to talk a lot about history and, and look at some interesting stuff as we see the historical record unfold. But primarily, listen to me, this book is not history. Primarily, it is a sermon. God wants us to learn about His will and His way and His greatness. And if we'll come to it like that, I believe we will see how rich this book is. This book has something to say about God. It has something to say about us serving Him faithfully and courageously. And may we all have ears 